Good morning. I'm Kristen Loney. As Chris said, today we'll be reading from Matthew 18, 15 through 20, which can be found on page 823 in the Pew Bible. Matthew 18, 15 through 20. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. This is the word of the Lord. I pray with one more time. Holy Spirit, now would you come and speak to your people? Would you draw those who are not yet your people to yourself? Help us believe that you have what we need and that what you did on the cross is sufficient to rescue and to save us. So help us engage your word as if they are f- words for us because they are. Would you take these ancient words that were spoken by your son uh, and would you apply them to our heart in fresh, uh, particular ways? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Hey, if you're visiting, I promise we're like a happy people, uh, but there's something about just being honest about the pain that we're experiencing that's just important for us as well. I think it actually has the potential to make us more happy to be honest about what's going on inside of our souls. So let me just kind of catch you up where we've been. We're actually, I said a series on peacemaking, that's probably not actually true. We're in a series in Matthew, but as we hit this section, this passage, it felt important to kind of slow down for a little bit, and I hadn't planned on doing two sermons on this passage and then as I got into it more this week I realized there's actually a whole lot to say and we're trying to keep our sermon times down a little bit I thought I'm either going to like fly over really important things and be really confusing or we get a chance to just kind of slow down and I was like hey we don't have like shareholders or like there's no bosses so like if we want to slow down we can slow down so we're, we're going to slow down just a little bit we're going to slow down and just ask God to speak to us around these topics of peacemaking and forgiveness and repentance and How do I go and be reconciled? Last week, we spent most of our time on the parable Jesus tells after what we just read. It's a parable that Jesus explains to his disciples who are asking, after he gives these four kind of peacemaking steps, Peter asks a question of, okay, great, that's pretty thin advice. How often should we do that? He begins to ask the nuanced questions that you and I begin to ask based on a text like this. And in fact, maybe if you're not familiar with the scriptures and this is all you ever hear about peacemaking, it can not only feel thin, but maybe really inadequate. I think, I think it's a beautiful text. I don't mean to diminish the text at all, but, but if you're bringing a complex, historic, relational pain to this text, you can find it maybe thin to apply. And I think Peter just gives us 
permission to be honest about that. In verse 21, he goes on to say, Lord, how often should we do this? How often do we forgive our brother when they sin against us? As many as seven times. Jesus says, oh, no, no, not not seven times, but 77 times. And then he tells this story of a king who uh, has a fortune. And one of his servants owes him uh, this incalculable debt. It's like 20 years wages times 10,000. It like broke my, there was like letters on my calculator as I tried to figure out what that number was. It's a high number meant to say you could never pay it back. He cries out for mercy. The king says what you deserve is actually to be thrown in prison and until you can pay it all back. It's this consequence of our sin the Bible takes very, very serious. And in that space it says he cries out for mercy and the king has pity on him and, and forgives him. It was amazing. This incalculable debt he could never pay back. Uh, the king doesn't just say, I'll put you on an installment plan. He says, I just wipe it away. And then the parable is designed with kind of a punchline to it. And the punchline comes next. The punchline is not that God's a gracious God who forgives. That's not the punchline. The punchline is this person who's been forgiven this inordinate amount of, of debt now goes to a fellow servant, it says. Not somebody in royalty, somebody who's a peer of theirs. Somebody who also deserves grace and mercy. Who owes them, and the text said it's a it's hundred days wages, which is maybe in our economy, maybe $10,000. If you think about what you, what you make annually, it's about, it's about 10 grand, 15 grand. And it's not nothing, right? It's not an insignificant number, but compared to this billions number, it's quite a small number. And the punchline is that the servant begins to choke his fellow servant after he's just been forgiven and says, pay back what you owe. And then Jesus, in telling the story, puts the same language in this being choked servant's mouth, saying, have, have pity on me. And instead of the servant that's been forgiven having pity, he, he actually throws him in jail. And then there's people that watch that. There's a community around that watches that, and they're outraged. That's the punchline. They go back to the king and say, you're never going to believe what happened. This guy that you forgave billions choked somebody out for a few grand. Again, not insignificant, but but in comparison, really insignificant. So the king comes to that servant and says, I, I forgave you. Should you not also have forgiven your brother? And then he does throw him actually in jail. And there's judgment language in that space. And it ends with this phrase in verse 35. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So it's a provocative story that leaves us with lots of questions, but the, the main point is really clear. We serve a God who has forgiven us an incalculable debt. The, the sin that we um, have committed, the treason, the rebellion, the brokenness, the ways that we've navigated the world around us, both things that have happened to us and our response to them, it's really, really deep, the Bible says. It puts us in categories of, of enemy and even dead is the way this talks. That's where we find ourselves. And here comes God's mercy to actually show to us this amazing grace and mercy and pity to forgive us of our sins. And that's meant to orient our entire lives. So Peter begins to ask a question that we might ask some details and some, some logistics and some thoughts about what would happen and how do I think about this and what do I do next and what about this scenario? What if it's abuse and what if it's a sibling and what if it's a spouse and what if it's a boss and what if it's in the church and all the what if questions that we might begin to ask. And what Jesus does is super instructive to ground us in the most important idea, which is the good news of the gospel that we've been forgiven. He just answers the, the what if questions with this um, gravitational center 
of mercy and grace, which is the Christian message. It's the Christian story of a, of a God who comes to his people to forgive and to rescue. And, and then we said we were going to start there and then come kind of back into the text and talk in some details about it. And, and as I study this week, I, I just need you to understand there's a book ending here in this chapter 18 with chapter 16, some of the exact language is used, and, and Jesus wants you to see that the church is meant to be a place that helps you with your peacemaking. So this, this progression here of go to your, your brother privately, and if they don't listen, then take somebody else with you. That would be another person from the church kind of casually or organically. And then if they still don't listen, then, then take it to the church. And then he says the church has this kind of authority. Whatever they, they bind on earth and loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And if you've been here for a couple of months, you remember when we were in chapter 16 of Matthew, the same kind of language is used. But in that space, the question that gets asked is not about forgiveness. The question that gets asked is, is who do people say that I am, Jesus asks. And Peter gives a couple of kind of cultural answers, and then Jesus turns to him and says, but who do you say that I am? And this is now in verse 16 of chapter, I'm sorry, verse, yeah, 16 of chapter 16, Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him and said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, the rock of your confession, I will build my church. So there's this confession and the church. There's this confession and the church. And he says, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you, same language, bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Okay, so Jesus is making an effort to show us there's something about the way the church relates in the world and with its people that both reflects this heavenly reality and is meant to be a place where we experience help in our peacemaking. So the $10 million question is, what do you do when the church has been a place of pain like far from peace maybe you would say hey that sounds great but but actually the the nightmares and the sweats and the space where I'm concerned and why I'm in counseling and and why I'm actually not sure I even want to be in the room right now is because of pain I've experienced in the church so as I thought about like unpacking this passage I thought man as I explained to you how the church is meant to be a benefit we have to just own the fact that for many of us the church is a place of pain I came to faith uh, when I was like 12 years old. My dad was an alcoholic. My mom was culturally Catholic, military family. We moved back from Germany to a luxurious Oklahoma, which is quite a downgrade. And as we engaged that, a uh, kid just led my brother to Christ. My brother was 15, 16 years old at the time. Just shared Jesus with him in high school. And I was in middle school. My brother sat me down and shared the gospel with me. And so we, we became followers of Jesus because somebody shared the good news. And my dad is a good man, but not, not one of a religious bent. He actually grew up in the church um, and quickly, as fast as he could, as soon as his dad kicked him out of the house at 16, he was done with the church. I don't ever have a memory of my dad going to church before this. And he's a good dad. He's a, a moral man. He was an alcoholic. He struggled with addiction. And it makes a ton of sense in his story why that happened. I love my dad so much. And my dad came to watch my brother get baptized. Like you would go see your kids spelling bee or watch them play a sporting event or their band concert. And my dad hears the gospel and, and is radically saved. He, he's converted. And actually, more to the story, there was genuine revival happening in the church, which I've never actually seen before, by the way. 
I've been a professional Christian for over 20 years and have been in church for a long, long time. I've never seen revival like this. And what it looked like was people lining up on Sunday morning, 50 people deep to confess their sin, which, which we're not going to do today. But it was, it was remarkable. It was unprompted. It wasn't coerced. People just wanted to come into the light. That's the way the revival looked. It looked like people unburdening themselves. And I laughed with my dad years later. I was like, I mean, it's a little bit like, this is 19... Like '89, uh, like a little like the Jerry Springer show, if you can remember some of that. Like it was these like stories and sordid tales of affairs and all these things. And as this guy was kind of drawn into that story, I think, and then God got a hold of his heart. Well, well, that um, launched us into just full life in this church. And my dad became a follower of Jesus. My mom got baptized, and we were like all in at this church in Oklahoma. So that was my like sixth, seventh grade year. My junior year of high school, uh, the church split. I remember sitting kind of around there. Deacons rushed the stage to remove the pastor. And again, it was another Jerry Springer moment. This is like five years later, but there was massive conflict. Even some of the things that had been confessed and people had said, hey, you know, I'm donating this ring because it was a, a sham of an affair or something, so I'm giving it to the church. Well, well, unbeknownst to lots of people, the pastor had done some shady things with those rings and cars that were donated. And so the whole thing blew up. We went from like this large, prominent church to kind of a shell. And I was 17 years old. My youth pastor I loved dearly, and I watched this church that had been um, so meaningful for me uh, just kind of fall apart. My youth group went from like 200 kids to like 30 kids in my senior year of high school. Uh, when my youth pastor left, I remember the person who told me, I just like called him a liar. I was like, why would you lie about that? That's so unkind. And of course he had left and had, had gone somewhere else. And it was just such a disorienting time. And I watched people in the church that years before had been means of grace for my dad to receive the good news of the gospel now act in ways that were not very aligned with the gospel. And it shook the church. It shook my dad in some pretty significant ways. Uh, probably launched him into a four or five year tailspin of wondering what's true. I don't think he ever went fully back to drinking, but he used lots of other methods of addiction to kind of soothe and cope with some of the pain. It really, really, really shook my dad. It really, really, really shook that community. It really, really shook, shook me. So I was like 17, man. You're trying to make sense of so many things, and I'm trying to understand people that say they follow God um, acting in ways that are not consistent at all with the way God would call us to live. The details of that story are probably different than what you've experienced. Maybe, maybe it wasn't Oklahoma, and it wasn't rings and cars and revival, but, but there may be some similarities to watching people that the scriptures say God gives authority to lead his people. You, you actually can't escape the idea that God has designed the church to be a physical representation of his grace and mercy. Fresh off the membership class, we walk through Ephesians chapter 3, and it just says like the church is the manifold expression of the mystery of God to make peace with people that the cosmos looks in and sees and goes, man, God is amazing to make peace with his enemies. And the church is the physical expression of that. It's meant to be the place where we see those who are far off brought near, and yet it's often a place where we feel some, some deep pain. So, so I say all that because I, I want to just slow down to like address it. I don't want to pretend that we're not 2022. We're not, we're not months and years after a pandemic when, when God, I think, in his kindness, flipped the American church upside down. 
in the summer of 2020 exposed so many things about race, about disunity, about our, our allegiance to certain political parties. It made us ask all kinds of questions about what it meant to gather as a people. And you lost friends over decisions that were made during that season. And maybe they're room restored now and there's been humility, but maybe you still carry the fragments of that, some, some jagged edges. It, it just didn't feel loving to go, hey, let's talk about how the church is supposed to be a place of peacemaking. And the whole time you're going, yeah, except for my story. Or yeah, except for the, this situation. So I, I wanted to say I, I understand, and I understand as one who leads the church. Th- this sermon and the next couple of weeks are challenging for several reasons. One is we normally just stick to a passage and walk through it. And I think what might be most helpful to us is to do some surveys of the Scripture and kind of walk out several texts. We'll clip into this one as kind of home base. But, but what will be different next couple of weeks is we'll, we'll kind of bounce around to, to several passages. That, that will be kind of different. What also is different is that I'm trying to address a very particular space in our very particular body. So, so I joke with the membership class, like, um, I think our podcast gets like tens and tens of downloads a week, um, and it's just you who missed. It's not like out there. So I have zero desire to pastor the internet, like none, but I desperately want to pastor you. I want you to hear the good news of God's grace, and so as I've prayed about where we are as a people, how this passage hits us, where we are as I come into like... Uh, the end of a, of a second full year here as the pastor. Remember, we came in on lots of pain. There was a lot of loss the church experienced for a really long time. And then God just threw gas on this place, and we began to grow really rapidly. And I don't know if we had a chance to process some of that pain. We tried to do a couple of classes and try to do some counseling and try to make space for lament, but the, the pace was such that it just moved really quickly. And so, so I'm actually now sitting back coming up on two years going, I wonder if there's things that still need to be healed inside our body. And a lot of you left churches to come to this place. A lot of you left a church that I was a part of and helped to plant. And so what makes this interesting is that we're not just dealing with a sterile passage, which in fact, We're never dealing with a sterile passage, by the way. God's word is always meant to be applicable right to where you are. It speaks a living word of hope to wherever you are. Even if the details or the dates or the culturalness of it feels far away, God intends to speak directly to you. But but this feels really easy to see as a word for us. As you're navigating pain you've experienced somewhere else, as you bring that pain into this place, into a place that, again, is very familiar with pain so in some ways what's awkward or different about these next couple of of weeks is that i'm trying to be very hyper particular about where we are and friends i don't know exactly where we are i don't know how many people are actually coming i don't know who's going to be here a year from now i don't know what all you're carrying inside your heart i care deeply about it but i'm trying to speak to a room that has a varied story a room that would involve people that are actively harming people in this moment and those who are feeling actively harmed. People who have settled their church issues and feel really resolved and people who, as I'm talking, I mean, your heart is racing right now. That is a challenging thing to speak into. So if we can just like make a deal together, like I will try my best in my situation or the particulars of where you find yourself 
if you won't hold me to unrealistic expectation that I can address all the things. I mean, we just, you know, you know that I can't, but, but there's so much uniqueness to your story. I want to I will say some things that, that are very appropriate in one scenario and really painful in another scenario, but both of those and nine more scenarios are in the room at the same time. So I'm mindful of that. I want to be careful with that, but that will make these next couple of weeks kind of challenging. And, and then third, and maybe I've already referenced this a little bit, um, I think I'm part of the problem. So, so I stand here in this space behind God's word saying, thus saith the Lord, and I've, I've hurt people. There have been places as a pastor over the last 20 years in various scenarios where I've made mistakes, where I, I actively hurt someone, where I neglected people. And of course, I'm not like saying that uh, with anything except deep sadness. But I just want to acknowledge, even I would guess in the room, there are people who I hurt you a decade ago. And maybe we had a chance to be reconciled, which is really beautiful for me to look you in the eye. And there's probably some places of active hurt that maybe we're still in process or things that were said that we haven't had a chance yet to dialogue about. So I'm mindful of the challenge to have someone stand up behind the Bible and give you instructions about peacemaking. And the whole time in your heart, you're going like, we got some work to do. Like you, you and I have to work this thing out together. So can I just like ask for you to um, be open to that kind of reconciliation and let me earn back your trust. Let's get some help involved. Um, I would love to actually deal with the pain that I've caused. You can't lead a church for a long time and not um, let your humanity spill out. And as a sinful man who gets anxious and is afraid and immature and who uh, just made, makes and made lots of mistakes. I'm just, I'm just aware of that. So um, I'm sad about that. Actually, there's several times this week I almost like pulled the plug. I was like, nope, can we just jump into chapter 19? But that's about divorce, which wasn't a whole lot easier uh, as we go down that space. But we'll, we'll get there too. That matters, by the way. Hey, that matters actually. The same gospel is being applied here. Matters in that situation. But um, it just felt like God wanted me to stand here with you for a little bit engage the awkwardness and even maybe we could say things like two years in is about the time for the honeymoon phase to start to wind down a little bit like it's been fun and exciting honeymoon phase is a real phase in a relationship like it's legit it's a phase in business it's a, it's a real phase but it's it's less than honest and then you come out of the honeymoon phase when you begin to say actually that's kind of frustrating actually that's been annoying for a number of months actually I said I like that, but I never really liked that, and now we've got to talk about that. It's actually an invitation to intimacy, which is really beautiful for me. So I'm not afraid of coming out of the honeymoon phase, but I'm mindful it might get a little choppy. So there are some things that changed here that were just neutral things. They weren't moral things. But some of the changes brought loss. Some of the changes have grief attached to them. Some, of course, I think are, are good, but, but it's a complicated bag. You have lots of stories there's lots of healing. Sometimes I consider the church like a refugee camp. People are, are coming from places where they're being liberated. But man, I, I, my understanding is refugee camps are very messy places. As we're working out our redemption together. And in fact, as you look not just over from 2020 to 2022, but, but the history of the church in America and actually the history of the church in the world, even the New Testament letters are full of conflict and pain and division and false teaching and warnings so in some ways, like, this is a very normal 
even if it's really painful space. And I just want to honor it to kind of slow down a little bit. So here's my plan. Today I want to talk about, like, what do you do when the church has been a place of hurt? I want to use just maybe four or five points to kind of orient us a little bit. It won't be fully satisfying, but it may just put the gospel at the center for us to go forward. And, and then I want to talk about what the Bible teaches about the church being a place of, of healing, which will be a space for us to own and ask God to help us grow a little bit. I want to then talk about like the steps God gives us to do conflict resolution. Like the Bible gives us a gift here relationally. The Bible is full of wisdom to help us. So, so what does it actually say? And then we need to talk a little bit about what it means to have this courageous, costly love to actually move towards somebody who's, who's not in keeping with God's heart, to move towards them with discipline. How is that even a good idea in light of the culture that we in? How could that possibly be loving? So, so I want to like slow down and engage some of these passages. And I realize like the order of this might feel weird to you. Like maybe I should teach those other things first and then kind of clean it up at the end. But, but I wanted to address it up front. I had this illustration like, um, like if I have a heart attack and, and go to the ER, uh, I will need to talk to a nutritionist who will talk to me about my habits and the, my cholesterol and all that stuff. I told, yes. But like first I need a cardiologist in the ER. I think there are like long-term healthy things we should talk about. Um, but, but first, there's kind of this, like, reparative place. And what I want to do in that illustration is what I think Jesus does so helpfully for us in these chapters is puts the gospel of Jesus at the center, even of our church pain. Because church pain isn't big enough to, like, hold our lives. What the Bible talks, the gravitational center of the universe and of our redemption is what Christ did for us on the cross. And in chapter 16, Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, and then Jesus goes on to explain what that means. Do you remember that? He says, that means I'm going to die, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be killed, I'm going to be raised. And Peter fights against that in chapter 16 and says, no, he actually rebukes Jesus. Jesus tells him, my mission is a mission that's rooted in my self-sacrifice for you. And Peter fights him on that. And then Jesus goes past that situation to say, and actually if you want to follow me, you have to die yourself. You have to deny yourself as well to come and give up who you are to come be my disciple. And at the moment that we're disoriented, we hit the transfiguration passage where Jesus is shown to be glorious. So he's not a guru. He's not just a stoic. He's not somebody who's giving us advice. He actually is God himself come into our world. And then we get this really interesting passage with this temple tax. And we see this really beautiful but interesting moment where, where God pays for their tax through a putting a coin in a fish's mouth. And it's meant to say to us, when you could not even imagine how the gospel was good news or how you could possibly die to yourself or how you could follow this glorious God, God's able to provide for you in ways you didn't even have categories. Like a coin in a fish's mouth, like it's not a strategy. That's this miraculous intervention from God. And it's meant to say to us, God is able with your really difficult, twisted, jagged situation to move towards you, to provide miraculously for you in ways that actually match his gospel heart. Your, your pain and your fear matter so much. And the gravitational center of the gospel is big enough to hold those. But if you put your pain and your fear at the center, there's no medicinal value there. It won't be big enough to actually you. So, so what Jesus does, even in this story of the king absorbing the cost of the great debt, is a gospel story to say to us, 
hey, God is the one who actually rescues and redeems. He has what you need, and he can help you in this space. So, so the cardiologist, so to speak, is, is a gospel message to move towards us to help us actually engage. So I just wanted to ask for the time we have left, like how would you apply the gospel to the place of church pain? How would you engage it? How would you actually open up a dialogue there? How would you, how would you engage what God wants to say to you through, through the good news of the gospel? And, and I want to start uh, chapter 18, verse 20, with this section here of these four steps that Jesus gives. And he talks about coming to the church And then in verse 20, he says, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. The gospel is the good news that Jesus came into our world, died in our place to make a way for us to be right with God. Then Jesus says he sends the Holy Spirit to us to be with us, and he promises to never leave us or forsake us. And he puts that promise in the middle of this conflict resolution passage in the church. I know you know this, but fortunately sometimes we can deceive ourselves that, that the hope of the church is not the pastors. I find a lot of comfort in the fact that I'm a sheep. That's actually good for you for me to know that. It's good for me to know that. And it lets us actually then look to the great shepherd of the sheep who is the one who sacrificed himself to heal and to forgive, to make a way for us to be in relationship. We start with the overflow of the gospel to the spot of like, I can trust God. He came into our world not with a clipboard and a lab coat to analyze us and measure us and give us critique. Remember, he came as a peasant and suffered, was betrayed himself, lived the life that we should have lived, died a sacrificial death in our place. And so for God to come into our world as the chief shepherd, as the one who actually sacrifices himself, orients how we understand like pain and hope and promise and gives us a sense of actually deep, deep rest in the chief shepherd. So that's the first R I want to give you. You can rest in the one who died for you when it comes to your church pain. There's a really important passage in Ezekiel 34. It's a rebuke to the shepherds of Israel in the Old Testament. It uses really graphic language, and it says basically they're devouring the sheep, and they're eating the sheep, and consuming the sheep, and becoming fat on the sheep. And it's a really vivid, kind of violent message there. And then he says in that space that he's going to come as the shepherd and going to come and actually care for the sheep. He rebukes the false shepherds. And then in verse 11 of Ezekiel 34, he says, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I myself will search for the sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered. He goes on to say, I will bring them in, I will feed them, I will cause them to lie down, I will seek the lost, I will bring them back, I will bind up their injured, I will strengthen the weak, he says. And he says, behold, I will judge. We start with the good news of the gospel message saying that we can actually trust the one who gives us this word because he died in our place to make forgiveness and grace possible. We rest in the chief shepherd. This is his church. And I think actually in a kind, beautiful way, God has exposed where we have gotten in bed with other kinds of power as a culture, as a church community, as a denomination, as a particular location. Not just of those people out there, but these people in here. It's God's kindness, the scriptures say, when he exposes and disciplines us. But he disciplines us as one who died in our place. 
He disciplines us as one who forgave this inordinate debt, this gigantic billions debt. That's the one who rebukes the church, and we can actually rest in him. The shepherd sees, shepherd knows, shepherd promises to care for. And so the pain you feel, your hope is not rooted in a pastor or a church being a healing place. I love when I hear that Hope Community Church feels safe. It makes me so happy to think about this being a kind of community where you can come and catch your breath, get your legs back underneath you. But every time I hear that, it feels spring-loaded for disappointment and pain down the road because there will come a day, because we're human, where there'll be pain here for you. And in that space, if you've been putting your hope in the church, the leaders of the church, which you'd be really hesitant to do in 2022, but you might actually over time find yourself at ease because of the leadership here or the the sweet people in their 80s here who weathered 60 years of storms, that might give you peace. And yet, yet that actually won't be a safe place for you to rest. But the chief shepherd who knows you, sees you, provides for you, cares for you, he is a place where you can rest. So rest. Number two, remember this debt that you've been forgiven. It's the parable that Jesus tells. And I don't say that to say, hey, get off someone's back or lighten up on them because you're a sinner too. I just mean it as good news for you, right? There's, there's good news that you can be forgiven. So when the scripture says forgive as you've been forgiven, it gives us this framework to think about the way God actually forgave us. Preparing for this, man, I read a ton. I actually have a stack of books up here uh, that I, I probably should like hold up so you know I'm like, you're going, hey, you stole that from that person. I stole that. Anything that's helpful, I stole from somebody. I just read so many things this week, I can't remember who all I got it from. But um, Ken Sandy's book, The Peacemaker, super helpful. Uh, Redeeming Power, Understanding Authority and Abuse by Diane Langberg was huge. This new book that we referenced in the newsletter by Brad Hambook, uh, Making Sense of Forgiveness. And I I reread parts of uh, When Narcissism Comes to Church by Chuck DeGroat. Someone has my physical copy. I had to kindle it. So if you have that, I'll take that back. Um, but that was, that was super helpful. I even read some of The Mute Christian by Thomas Brooks, who's a, a pastor in the 1600s, about how do you endure in spaces where there's comma or conflict in the church. So anything helpful probably comes out of those. But in one of those, there's a conversation about what forgiveness is not. When the Scripture says, forgive us the Lord forgave you, we should say, what does that not mean? It doesn't mean that you have to have this feeling. Forgiveness doesn't mean forgetting. Forgiveness doesn't mean excusing or letting someone off the hook. Forgetting doesn't mean pretending that it didn't hurt. Forgiveness doesn't mean necessarily that you trust or are reconciled. In one of the the books, uh, it talks about this image from geometry. And he says, you've heard that in geometry class that all squares are rectangles, but not all rectangles are squares. He says, and a similar relationship exists between forgiveness and trust or reconciliation. All trust and reconciliation are rooted in forgiveness, but not all forgiveness results in trust and reconciliation. So the Bible says, forgive as the Lord forgave you. It's not a blanket call to let yourself stay in an unhealthy, unsafe relationship to your own harm. It's not saying it's no big deal. Actually, right, Jesus died in our place on the cross to say, no, this sin is a really big deal. It's actually so big, our only hope was that God himself would actually die in our place. That's how big it was. So it's not saying it's no big deal. It's not not forgetting. Even when the scriptures say in Isaiah 43, when God says, I will remember your sins no more, it doesn't mean the omniscient God forgot. 
It means he's choosing not to hold it against you. So, so Brad Hembrick in his book it gives this really easy, helpful definition, kind of rooted in the imagery from this unmerciful servant passage. He says, forgiveness is canceling a debt. That's what it is. It's saying, I will no longer make you pay for this. A loan of trust was given that has allowed us to be hurt. I lend something to you. You misuse it. It hurt me. Forgiveness means I won't make you pay that back. But whether we choose to give another loan is a matter of trust. That, that forgiveness and reconciliation are, are maybe two different things. In Ken Sandy's book, he talks about two phases of forgiveness. An, an attitude of forgiveness that has Jesus on the cross before anyone has asked for forgiveness say, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. There's an attitude to want to forgive. And then there is a granting of forgiveness that takes conversation and time with a person. In, in that same book by Ken Sandy, he talks about four promises of forgiveness. And he says they're, they're this, I won't dwell on this incident. That's the posture or this reflex to want to forgive. And then he says the other promises are, I won't bring this up, uh, hold this against you. I, w- I won't talk about this with other people. And I won't let this incident between us hinder our personal relationship. Those are four promises of forgiveness, he says. And then he says, when someone has actually asked your forgiveness, you're doing verses 2 three and four, or steps two, three, and four, I can have a desire not to dwell and not make you pay before you ever say anything. But to be in a space where I don't bring this up, where I don't talk to somebody else for help, where I don't, I don't have boundaries in place, where I don't actually ask you to engage this with me, those are the steps now of trust and reconciliation being, being rebuilt. It's just more nuanced, right? So when we hear, forgive as the Lord forgave us, we have to see this extravagance that actually has some wisdom in it. I realize that's really unsatisfactory if you're dealing with a really dangerous or tricky or prolonged situation. But, but just here, even in those like categories, like there's resources and wisdom. The Bible is wise. It's wise to actually help us know how to engage with what God says to us. It gives us a sense of how to actually respond to this gospel call. Uh, so so we, we start with this understanding of how much we've been forgiven we rest in the chief shepherd. We remember the debt that we've been forgiven. And then third, we, we repent quickly, believing both that we need grace and that it's available to others. And most of these books, as they talk about how to go forward and heal, they talk about the need for the person who's actually engaging with the one who offended them to own their own contradictions, to own their own inner complexity. There's something about a reflex to say, I need grace that puts us in a spot where we can actually extend it but not in a way that cheapens it. The more you understand how much you've been forgiven, the less likely you are to cheapen grace. The more it will make you smile to think about God forgiving you, but you won't dare kind of take it lightly. You'll understand what you're capable of and what's going on inside your heart, and then you can engage other people, not as somebody who's monotone. You, you actually, there's so much about you. You're, you're a varied person. There's lots of parts of you. But it would keep us from reducing somebody else down to just an offense or just a behavior or just a moment to the degree that we can remember how much we've been forgiven and we are quick to repent. The Gospel of Jesus says there's already on tab an inordinate amount of money that you could never exhaust. So come into the light. Come be honest. There's no threat to your repentance. Come quickly and be honest about your brokenness. And to be a community that practices that will make us safe. You won't have to hide. You won't have to be in the shadows. If if together we're quick to repent 
and be honest about what God has forgiven us, then we can welcome the stories of people around us and actually engage that with some wisdom and some grace. Fourth, we, we recognize what's inconsistent with gospel truth. To have gospel cardiology work in place is then to recognize what's not the gospel. To see, hey, actually, that's not in keeping with God's people. Even remember the story, he says, the kingdom of God is like this. This is what it's like to act like us. So when someone's not acting like us, we have a chance to actually say, hey, that's not in keeping with somebody who's following after Jesus. So we can call that sin, that abuse, that behavior, that power struggle, we can call that out of bounds in love. We recognize what is inconsistent with the gospel truth, the more you understand what that gospel truth actually is for you. In Diane Langberg's book, she talks about uh, this passage in Jeremiah, says the heart is deceptive, and she says that that can be translated as, as deceived or foot-tracked. And she gives an illustration of the way a hunter would like look for animals by droppings or by tracks or rubbings on trees. She basically says you can see the tracks of a deceptive heart. You, you can watch it, you can trace it. So a community that understands the good news of the gospel is quick to see the evidence of the flesh, is quick to see places where things are out of bounds. The second time, I won't walk through them, but, but there's a ton of exhortations to pastors to not pastor out of fear, flattery, compulsion, for dishonest gain, to get something from people. And when you watch somebody leading out of flattery and dishonest gain and out of compulsion to get something from people, it's a track leading back to some unhealth. So as a community, God's word is really helpful for us to say, hey, these are the things that are in keeping with the gospel, and these are things that are not. We can recognize what's inconsistent with gospel truth to the degree that we are in tune with what God has actually said is true about grace and forgiveness. I, I joke, I read these books. I also read a ton of the scriptures. And this morning as I prayed, like, I was like, God, thanks I've been walking with God for like over 30 years, which I still have like a long, 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 long way to go. But, but I've heard his voice. That Ezekiel passage says the great shepherd comes and John 10 says the shepherd comes and he speaks and the sheep can hear his voice. They understand what it is. The more you understand what Christ has done, who he is, what his word says, the more you can sense, wait, that's, that's control. Wait, that, that's a manipulative confession. Wait, that's actually, you're blaming me for what you did. But that's actually not a pattern of repentance. You're just using words of repentance. That's actually what the scriptures call a false teacher or, or bad fruit. Like you, you'll tune in because you hear the voice of God. The gospel will train us with the realities of for grace and forgiveness so that we can actually act on those with each other. That will be really beautiful. I'm almost done, I promise. Uh, fifth R? Sixth R? Nineteenth R? Seventh R? Somewhere in there? Receive the chief shepherd's words about how to respond to the hurt that's happened. This is huge. We're going to rest in the chief shepherd, trust in him. We're going to recognize how much we've been forgiven. We want to repent quickly. We want to recognize the patterns that are not in keeping with the gospel. And we want to receive his instruction. I asked you to pray last week, not, not to say how this can't be, but ask God how this could be applied to your situation. The great shepherd who knows everything, is everywhere, is good and loving and kind, has spoken to his people about how to engage. And you don't have to check like the scriptures at the door in favor for some sort of modern psychological understanding of relationships. The scripture is beautiful. You see lots of warnings not to be taken advantage of, lots of wisdom about not engaging with fools and dangerous people, even just in like Matthew, like the Sermon on the Mount. Remember he gives us like these postures of the Beatitudes? 
He tells us that we're actually we're capable of all kinds of brokenness and sin in this section of like, you've heard it say don't murder, but I tell you that hatred and insult is just as bad. He's exposing the nature of sin. He tells us not to retaliate to those who harm us. He tells us actually to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us, which is a command from Jesus to those of us who are carrying church hurt to love our enemies and to pray for those who hurt us, to receive and grant forgiveness, he says in chapter 6. And then we get this beautiful section where it says, hey, don't judge lest you be judged. And then he says, hey, would you lead from the perspective that you have a part to play in this with a log in your eye? Your brother has a speck. It's a perspective thing we talked about. But then he goes on to say, hey, and there are pigs and there are dogs that are dangerous. So don't give what's sacred to pigs. Don't give what's holy to dogs. So here's this, hey, don't judge. That sounds really nice and plastic. Hey, come lead with your own vulnerability. That sounds kind of dangerous. Hey, remember, there are dangerous people that you should not give your vulnerable heart in front of. There's a wisdom to the scriptures. The great shepherd of the sheep is wise in how he tells us to actually relate. But it doesn't change like the golden rule, right? He, he goes in to say, hey, and treat people the way you would want them to treat you. Apply the same gospel forgiveness that you've been applied with wisdom, with boundaries, earning back trust, but like hear his voice and don't flush what he's taught us. The Proverbs are huge. The epistles are huge. And there's lots and lots and lots of resources for God's people of how to navigate the pain that we feel. Even passages that say, what do you do with an elder that has sinned? How do you rebuke them? How do you bring a charge to them? How do you remove them? How do you identify false teachers? Jesus says you're going to know by their fruit. There's, There's ways for you to know and to actually receive the chief shepherd's words about how to respond is massive. I'm, I'm blown through that really fast, but as I say that, let me just say, man, if you have a concern about me or one of our staff members, you can take it to anybody on our personnel team. You, you, can, you can bring that to Rob Overton or Dave Byers or Kristen Clausen, to Ken Simpson, to Jackie Boat, and just say, hey, I, I don't know. Just something about this felt weird. Something about this felt odd. Like, we're accountable. So, so bring, bring questions. You have not just the ability to do that but the responsibility to do that so so hear jesus's words even the passage of scripture that we're just like not even reading just kind of gesturing to but i hope you just hear oh the bible says a lot about this the bible talks a lot about dangerous people a lot the bible gives us language to pour our hearts out it gives us wisdom to walk in situations it gives us specific commands of how to apply these things and finally the last r for this morning is to refrain from being the final judge this text of unmerciful servant, we see the king is the one who is the judge, not the fellow servant. In the Ezekiel passage, it's God himself who is the shepherd who comes. Jesus often says, hey, don't judge, let God do that. You're going to be confused with the wheat and tares parable. You're going to miss some things. Trust your heart, your life, your story, and that person's story to God himself. Refrain from finding yourself as the final judge, even while you're wise, even while you put boundaries in place, even while you you say, I don't know if I should lend any more to you because of the way you misused that trust in those spaces to refrain from finding ourselves in the godlike space of judging someone else, we can still be very, very wise and distance ourselves. Okay, that's a ton. I, I actually, I knew it was going to be. I want to just put some things in place for us so the next couple of weeks we can navigate a few scenarios and you not confuse what I'm saying. I want you to hear 
But the gospel relates, it, it applies, it has texture to it, it presses into the crevices of the spaces of your life where you have questions, and it starts and ends with this beautiful declaration of God's amazing sovereign grace. That's enough for you. And that gives us hope for other people's sin and, and for our own. So as I just wrestled this week with like, seriously, dude, you're going to stand up, look people in the eye that you've hurt, talk about church hurt for real? You go, oh, but if Christ is big and can forgive, there's hope for all of us. Which is what we celebrate in communion every week. You don't take communion because you're worthy. You don't take communion because you've earned it. You take communion because you need it. Because you know there's nothing you could do to rescue yourself or save yourself. Christ and Christ alone can do that. I'll take communion this morning as a shepherd who is a sheep who needs God's grace and is remembering Christ's sacrifice for me. I would encourage you to do the same. Come with all your questions. You'll hold a physical reminder of God's broken body and shed blood, how he paid the penalty for your sin. Bring all your questions to that moment and ask him to help you make sense of that. And then thank him that even while it's cloudy or confusing, there is a way for you to be forgiven. That actually is the good news of the gospel. We have at the end of each line, a line here, the gluten-free here in the middle. You'll just come and tear a piece of the bread off and dip it in the cup. They'll say this is the broken body of Jesus and his blood shed for you. If you're not a follower of Jesus, what you've been hearing is the Christian message about how you can be saved and redeemed. Would you just pray in your seat if you're not a follower of Jesus and just ask him to speak to you? There's prayers in the back of your bulletin that will give you some language for that, but but just ask God to speak. You can bring your pain to him. You can ask him to help you make sense of things. And it might even be church pain. That's the reason you would articulate why you're not a follower of Jesus. And thanks for being in the room. Thanks for stepping this direction. Just bring your heart to him. He cares. And the great shepherd can, can speak to that space. For all who are trusting, let me pray for you. And then we'll take communion. And then we'll sing together. Jesus, we say thank you for who you are. And we ask for your help. You are good and you are glorious. We need you. And we ask now that you'd fill the room with a sense of your presence. Heal, comfort, restore, renew, feed, bind, seek the way we see in this Ezekiel passage. Speak to us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.